0: I'd like to share with you today about something called Old versus New. And to kind of start this off, I remember growing up in my hometown of Wabash, Indiana. It was just a small town, about 10,000 people. And there was something that I remember people used to do all the time. We had kind of on the other side of town where I lived a main strip, a main drag of road. And people, especially younger people, love to take these old beater trucks, now I don't mean cool retro trucks, I mean like junk trucks that they somebody gave them, they bought for a couple hundred bucks, and they would put thousands of dollars into these trucks. I mean, it, it's hilarious when I think about it now. They have all these lights, these spinning wheels. And boy, this truck could barely make it down the road, but they were cruising and you know the sound system was pumping. I mean, it was rattling so bad because there's so many loose parts on these trucks. But then the kind of the thing to do was to do that and then cruise the strip. Go, oh, there's somebody cruising the strip. They would just ride back and forth down this. It was probably only a mile if that strip. And they would do it all night. They just it was just something to do. But I remember seeing that and thinking, man, that's silly. It's just such a, the truck's falling apart, but yet they're going to put thousands of dollars into trying to make this truck look like something that it's not. And it reminds me of a couple stories in the Bible, and I love these stories, and I love them because they're so symbolic for us. The first one is about Moses, and Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and they're in the desert and the people get thirsty and there's no water anywhere. So Moses is there and the people can begin to complain to him and they say, "Why have you brought us out here? You just brought us out here to die? Oh my goodness, and they want to go back to Egypt. Oh, it's just so it's just so bad, all this stuff, okay, We know how the Israelites would get. So Moses goes to God and God gives him specific instructions to take the staff, the staff that Moses used to part the Red Sea and to touch the Nile with, take that staff, assemble the people, walk before the elders of Israel, go to this rock and strike the rock with the staff, and water would flow from the rock. And I love that story because it's so symbolic of Jesus that Jesus is our rock. He's often referred to as the rock, the cornerstone. And what did he say about himself? If you, When you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But Jesus was struck. And even beyond that, I look at the staff and Moses very much being the law and how, how the law sort of led to this place, to the rock. And once the law basically brought Jesus and and brought Jesus so he could die for us. Jesus said that anyone who believes on him out of his, what, out of his spirit, his belly rivers of living water would flow. So we see the symbolism here between this story of Moses coming, striking the rock and Jesus being our rock, bringing rivers of living water to us. Fast forward Several years later, after wandering in the desert for years, there's another time where they're in a place where there's no water, and the people begin to complain against Moses again. Now, this is something interesting, just to remember, this is very shortly after Miriam, Moses' sister, had passed away. And uh, we know it was kind of close in time to this event, so I'm not sure where Moses' headspace was at this time, how focused he was. But we see the people complain. But it's interesting, the people complain just a little bit different this time because they said something to Moses, and I'm sure it probably set Moses off. They said, why have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness to, to die of thirst? So they associated now, after all, they associated themselves with being on the, basically the Lord's side and Moses, well, you've done and screwed the pooch on this one. And isn't that just like the enemy to do to pit us against one another that, well, the Lord, I'm actually on the Lord's side, and you and it's just he, he loves to twist things and make things look a certain way. And so we see Moses and Aaron. they go to the tent of meeting. The Lord comes, He speaks to them. He gives them specific instructions again. This time, it's just a little bit different. He tells Moses to go and get the staff, which this is interesting because I thought that Moses just walked around with his staff all the time. No, it was actually kept before the Lord in the tent, and God told him to go get it. And after that, they were to assemble the people, go and stand before the rock. And this time, though, God wanted Moses to speak to the rock and he said, through you, I will, I will flow water out of the rock for the people. So Moses, it says that he obeyed the Lord and went and got the staff. They even went a step further. They obeyed the Lord and assembled the people. And now they're standing before this rock. And then that's, this is when it all just kind of goes up in flames. Moses is obviously frustrated. Moses is not in a good head space. And... He says, I mean, I'm trying to quote word for word. He says, you rebels, talking to the people. He's like, okay, he's he's getting dirty now. You rebels, shall I bring water from this rock for you? And he says this in such a way, and I you it's it's sometimes it's hard to read a scripture and get the emotion behind it, because you just don't know sometimes how a person felt. You can just kind of take events that are around around that, put it in context. Like I say, his sister had recently passed. The way the people were, were talking and poking and prodding Moses was very accusatory that he wasn't really on the Lord's side. They were on the Lord's side kind of attitude. And Moses almost has this contempt for the rock. He has this contempt for how God was going to bring water. I don't know how Moses wanted it to go down, I don't know if maybe he was tired of these kind of ways of bringing water, if he was just ready to be in the promised land. I I don't know. But for whatever reason, Moses, he was not thrilled about this way. And it says that Moses took the staff and he struck the rock twice. And then water came out. And I always thought as a kid growing up that Moses kind of went, you know, bam, bam, and the rock then brought water. But I really think now that I study this again that Moses probably struck the rock once and probably in his frustration and nothing happened. And he knew, he knew that he was not being obedient to what God told him to do. It wasn't a mystery what he was supposed to do. And so when nothing happens, I really feel like maybe God was trying to give Moses another chance to get this thing right. But Moses didn't do that. Moses, instead of, of whatever he needed to do to remedy the situation, he takes the staff again and he strikes it again. And this time it's like the Lord knew, hey, Moses is committed to to this way. And then there were consequences for that. And God calls them aside and tells tells Moses that and Aaron because they, they, it doesn't say because of their disobedience, it says because they did not trust in the Lord and because they did not hold the Lord as holy and reverence him in front of the people. And I, I think he's really talking about the way they talked about the method that God chose, the rock, the way they despised that. And God said you will not enter the promised land, that they would die before that would actually happen, and that would be their punishment. And a couple questions about the scripture to chew on. I think the first thing that I think about is why did God have Moses go and get the staff if God never intended for Moses to use the staff? Think about that. He tells Moses to get the staff, but yet there was no... No reason for him to, I mean, think, well, what was the reason to get it? He wasn't going to use it. So why just take the staff to the rock? Why do this? And I think it's all about the symbolism and the picture that God was wanting to paint, not just for the people there, but for all of us to come. Is that God, the first time when the rock was struck, represented Jesus, his death, and how the people of Israel, through the law, and The law was that schoolmaster that brought us to Christ, as Paul talks about that. That now that 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 would have come, the law and Moses would need to come. And it was fulfilled at that point. There was no work to do. There was no striking the rock that had already been done. All Moses simply needed to do was to speak to the rock. And just like anyone who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It's as simple as that. There was no work to be done on your part anymore. There was no work to be done. There was no laws to meet and fulfill. They would have been fulfilled. There was no doing it again. There was no striking it again and again and again. But the staff and Moses were meant to just be there. And I believe it was very symbolic of simply being a fulfillment being fulfilled, and speaking where all of this was going to be supernaturally done. Your salvation is not by the works you do. It is by the grace of God, and that water would come. Those rivers would flow from the inside of us. And Moses, because they did not trust in the Lord, because they wanted to try to do this through their own way, they wanted to do it on their own, Just like some people, they don't want to trust in the Lord for their salvation. There's always some sort of thing they want to add to. Just like that old truck, they want to add these new parts to an old truck. That's not what God wants from us. He doesn't want us to take the old covenant and start mixing it with this new covenant that Jesus came to, to set and what he came and he did bring about is that we are saved Uh, by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, not by fulfilling any kind of laws so that you cannot brag about how you have earned your salvation somehow. And Moses, because of this, he obviously did not set that picture up. But isn't God good that even though Moses died before seeing the promised land, Jesus was still fulfilled in that symbolic way because who was it that actually led the Israelites into the Promised Land? It was Joshua. Whose name is uh, from, from Joshua's name? Yeshua. Jesus. So Jesus was, was literally named after Joshua. Joshua became that new symbol that brought about the new covenant, and will bring us into a promised land into that place of salvation, place of heaven. So God is so creative. He still brought about that that picture of the new covenant. But so kind of what's our takeaway from from this? How can we gain something from it? And I think the takeaway for me was just we have to be careful when we are studying God's word that we don't mingle the old covenant with the new covenant. And A lot of people don't know this, but uh, we call our Bible the Old Testament and New Testament. And that word testament is actually not the most correct word to use for that. Because the, the Latin, you trace that back when we first started calling that the testament, it was actually from the word covenant. And that's a better translation. And you can go and study all this and find it to be true. But it'd be better, honestly, if we called our Bible the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I think if we did, we would probably understand God's word a little bit better. And I see a lot of Christians when they're reading and studying God's Word, they're taking the old covenant, which which let's just look at the old covenant, was very much what we could do and then God would do. If you do this, then I'll do that. And the new covenant isn't really like that. The new covenant is more: hey, you receive this gift. Like I say, not of works, you receive this, and I will change you from the inside out where I don't need to write out a list of rules on a stone tablet for you to follow, and then I can bless you. No, these lists of things that you should do are going to be written on your heart. My covenant will be sealed by my spirit living on the inside of you, speaking to you as you walk in him, and you will fulfill the law, not by all the works you do, but by having my son and his, his sacrifice covering you. And I see us looking at sometimes the Old Covenant. We're reading this, and we're not looking at it through the lens of the New Covenant. And we have to be careful. We need to study the Old Testament through the lens of the New Covenant. Because it's not God's will that we take the old and mingle it with the new. Just like Jesus said, that we should not try to take new wine and put it into old wineskins. And that's what we do sometimes. Let me, and I'm just gonna give you a quick example. This is just one example. And let me just before I say this, because this is going to like set some people off, but I, I'm I'm not telling you not to do this or to do this. I'm just gonna give you what we need to be careful of sometimes and how, how this is an example of old covenant and new covenant and the word tithing so when we look at tithing in the bible that is very much an old testament covenant and it was something God established in the law now a lot of people like to argue that well look didn't Melchizedek Abraham tithe of his income to Melchizedek before the law let me just tell you that's not correct Abraham did not tithe his income To Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Abraham actually tithed just the spoils of war. Remember, he went and they they took they fought this war, and there was uh, some spoil that he took back, and he didn't want to keep that. He didn't want to keep that stuff, Uh, and he ended up the stuff he didn't want to keep. He gave ten percent of that to Melchizedek. It actually wasn't from his income, so I just want to clarify that. Also, we I hear a lot of people say, well, didn't Jesus uh, Jesus talked about tithing? And I would say that um, that even saying that is a really big stretch, because if you look at the verse, is one verse Jesus says the word tithing in, and he's actually uh, rebuking the Pharisees. And so in context, he's rebuking the Pharisees, and he says something to the effect of, uh, you tithe, but then you kind of do this, and... And he's really rebuking them. He, he certainly was not establishing a new command. This was not the Sermon on the Mount here for us. This was simply a rebuke to the Pharisees. He referenced how they tithed. And I don't see how Jesus established tithing through that. I think you're really stretching it to say that. And then I have to look at the evidence that's there in the New Testament where Paul, who set a lot of our church things into order, our our church structure, things we should do, shouldn't do. Hey, for example, you shouldn't just get up and start screaming out in tongues. You got to be, you know, without an interpretation, um, some church etiquette. Paul never, not even once, taught us to tithe. He never mentions tithing. Um, He actually teaches us about giving. He does it in a couple of ways. The first way is He told the church when they were wanting to give to help the other churches that they should give out of what they have, not what they don't have. They should give because, um, not because they feel coerced, but because they want to. They want to give with joy in their hearts and out of all the things God's given us. And the other time he talks about giving is when he's talking about supporting the pastors and the teachers that oversee them, that the ox is worthy of the grain that he treads, something in the Old Testament that was symbolic of the new. So Paul was looking at the old through the lens of the new, very important to do that. And so he, he taught giving on that way, but he never established tithing. The New Testament church, Peter, James, John, when the council met to uh, give the Gentiles certain things to follow, tithing was not one of them. Giving That was not even on the map. And when the New Testament church gave, they actually gave way more than a 10% tithe. So I just think that, and here's why I say all that. So I say that because there's a verse in Malachi about if you'll give, you bring your tithe into the storehouse, which was actually food. It was grain. It wasn't monetary. It was grain. Um, Then I will bless you. I will see if I won't pour out the windows of heaven. And I say that we just need to be careful that we, we don't study that, that Scripture isolated from the New Covenant. We have to study the Scripture under the lens of the New Covenant. And I will tell you, I believe that every believer should be giving. I believe that uh, giving consistently can be a difficult thing for us to get in the habit of and it's not a bad practice if someone says, hey, I know I'm not, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this to be blessed, but I think that I should give 10% of my income, and I want to do that consistently. I think that's absolutely fine. I think what we have to be careful of, though, is when we start saying things like, well, if you don't do the 10%, you know your other 90% is cursed. I think that we're taking the old covenant and we're looking at the new covenant through the old covenant lens when we say things like that, and we teach people that. So that's what I mean by mingling the two covenants. We just have to be careful with some of these things. And so when you're studying God's Word, I think the lesson here from Moses' stories is that God, the whole purpose of all that, God was going to establish a new covenant with His people. We have to be careful not to mingle the old with the new, and when we are studying the Old Testament, the old covenant, we need to be studying it through the lens of the new covenant, because the new covenant is absolutely above and superior to the old covenant, and it, you, could, you could say New Testament, new, Old Testament if you want, and I'm literally quoting from the word when I say that because Paul absolutely says that now that old covenant is obsolete. It's done. It's gone. The new covenant is here. These are words from from Paul himself. So I just think that those are things to consider, things to think about when you're reading the Old Testament. Look for the symbolism of Jesus there, and understand that These were real events that happened. I'm not trying to tell you that everything is just symbolic and none of these things happened. These are real events that happened, and they happened as an example for us today as believers. They happened so that we can see how the people reacted. We can see... How the, how the covenant was established. We can see Jesus through all these things. So just remember those things as you're studying God's Word. I hope that helps you, and I hope that that will encourage you as you grow in grace and you grow in truth. That was the last thing I wanted to say to you. Grow in grace and grow in truth.